Amos chapter 3 and 4. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole of the family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to do so? Does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? Does a bird swoop down to a trap on the ground when no bait is there? Does a trap spring up from the ground if it has not caught anything? When a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble? When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The sovereign Lord has spoken, who can but prophesy? Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land, pull down your strongholds, and plunder your fortresses. This is what the Lord says. As a shepherd rescues from the lion's mouth only two leg bones or a piece of an ear, so will the Israelites living in Samaria be rescued with only the head of a bed and a piece of fabric from a couch. Hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. On the day I punish Israel for her sins, I will destroy the altars of Bethel. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will tear down the winter house along with the summer house. The houses adorned with ivory will be destroyed and the mansions will be demolished, declares the Lord. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria. You women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord is sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your free will offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the Sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none, and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your figs and olive trees, yet you have still not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. 
I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning snake snatched from the fire, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. This is the word of God. Thanks, Bernie. Now let's pray. Lord, give us ears to hear your word, we pray. Humble us before you. Expose in us what you would want to remove. Now, Lord, we pray that you might change us as we hear you speak now. Amen. How do you know you're loved? Now, I hope it's not actually a question you need to ask yourselves. I hope it's just so obvious in your relationships, within your family, in your marriages, in your friendships. (laughs) I I hope you know and have never had to question that you are loved. But if you did, how would you know? I think I've shared this, this with you before, but before we started dating, one of the first clues I had that Janice was interested in me was that she, this lovely girl who hated cricket, agreed to come and watch a game of cricket with me and some friends. And I knew Janice liked me when we would go to parties, and despite the fact that she knew everyone else at the party, she would spend the whole night just talking with me. And I knew Janice really liked me when she got offered a job in another town and she came to ask me whether she should take it. But how did I know Janice loved me? There's just too many things I could say. Was it when she gave me a tub of ice cream for my birthday and says, I won't judge you for how quickly you eat it? That's love. When she sticks with me for 10 years... When she forgives me when I fail. When she stays committed to me when she could have anyone else in the world. That's love, isn't it? How do we know God loves us? Well, the Bible actually gives us a very clear answer to that. In Romans 5 verse 8 it says, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to know that God loves you, look at the cross. Because the fact that it was Jesus on the cross and not me, well, that's all the proof I need. But just as there are a thousand things that I could point to to prove that Janice loves me, Well, Jesus dying on the cross is not the only way we know that God loves us. It's easily God's greatest act of love. But this morning, we're going to spend our time looking at another aspect of God's love. Today, we're going to see that one of the ways we know that God loves us is that he punishes sin. Now, last week, we began this series in the book of Amos, 
We saw Amos was a shepherd that God had sent to prophesy about his own people, the nation of Israel. But the book began with Amos prophesying not about Israel, but about all of Israel's enemies. Amos announces God's judgment on all these pagan nations who are guilty of all sorts of horrible crimes against humanity. And this was a reminder to us that God sees and God cares about and God will do something about the injustices of our world. The guilty will not go unpunished. And that's a huge comfort for us particularly when we see horrible crimes being committed. I mean, I'm sure you heard about that that domestic attack on the Bruce Highway this week. Horrible. God will hold the guilty to account. Amos began with God's judgment on those who were not his people, on the nations, but then from midway through chapter 2 and right through to the end of this book, the focus narrows to God's judgment on his own people. And there is a lot of judgment. God roars with fierce anger at his own people. But all this talk of judgment, it might raise a question for you. Isn't God supposed to be a God of love? How is it that the God who so loved the world that he gave his only son could also be the God who roars with judgment as he does in Amos? Surely those two things cannot go together. Is he a loving God or is he an angry God? Surely he can't be both. Well, Amos 3 is really helpful with this because right at the start... We learn that it is because it is because God loves his people that he punishes sin. Read with me from verse 1 of Amos 3. It says, Hear the word, this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you. Against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. You only have I chosen of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. Do you see right here we have God's love and God's judgment together. In fact, Amos says that God's love is the reason for his judgment. Notice that important word in verse 2, therefore. I love you, I chose you, therefore I will punish you. God says it is because I have loved you, because I chose you, because I redeemed you from slavery in Egypt, it is because of my love that I will punish your sin. Now, let's just explore that idea for a moment because it it could mean two different things. We could understand God to be saying that it is because of his everlasting commitment to his people that he will not let them remain in sin. He loves them so much that he refuses to let them continue in rebellion. He will set them straight no matter what it takes. 
That's option one. Option two, on the other hand, is to say that it is because God has loved Israel so much that he's so enraged by their rebellion. And so he loves them so much and still they won't obey him. And so he decides to punish them. Option one is a parent disciplining their child. I love you, therefore I will punish you so that you stop doing wrong. Option two is the the bitter ex-lover. I loved you, but you have betrayed that love, and so I will stop loving you, and instead I will punish you. You see the two ways we could understand it? The question is, which one is it? I actually think both of them are in view here. But today, I want us to focus on option one. We'll see more of option two. But option one is to say, uh, because God loves his people, he warns his people, he exposes his people, and he disciplines his people. And they're the next three points on your outline. So we begin in verses three to eight. We see that it is because God loves his people that he warns them of his judgment. Now, in these verses, Amos gives us a list of examples of of cause and effect. He says, do two walk together unless they agreed to do so? Do do people meet up unless they have an arrangement? The answer is no. Verse 4, does a lion roar in the thicket when it has no prey? Does it growl in its den when it has caught nothing? And again, the answer is no. But as Amos goes on, he explains it's the same for God's judgment. Verse 6, when a trumpet sounds in a city, do not the people tremble. When disaster comes to a city, has not the Lord caused it? You see, Amos wants the people to understand that if disaster comes upon them, it is absolutely the judgment of God. It is no accident. But then see what he says in verse 7. He says, Surely the sovereign Lord does nothing without revealing his plan to his servants, the prophets. To put it another way, Surely the sovereign Lord does not punish sin without first warning. Have you ever thought about how so much of the Bible contains words of God's judgment? That's sort of strange. Do you ever find yourself thinking, why is God still talking about judgment? Why doesn't he just do it? I mean, why is Amos even here speaking to Israel? If God is so angry with them, why doesn't he just get on with what he says he's going to do? Why send Amos at all? It's unnecessary. I'll tell you why. Because God loves his people. And it is because God loves his people that he warns them of his judgment so that they might repent and stop sinning. This is what God does. This is what God is in the habit of doing. Jonah knew that, didn't he? Remember in the book of Jonah? It made him angry that, that God 
would send warning, that he would give an opportunity, that he might relent. Jonah hated it. He hated the fact that he would show mercy on the people of Nineveh. But it's wonderful news for us. Because, friends, the reason God has given you a Bible filled with warnings of punishment and stories of his judgment is that you might heed the warning. God will punish sin. But because he loves us, he warns us first. Because God loves his people, he warns his people. Secondly, because God loves his people, he even shames his people. And as we move on to verse 9, we see God doing something kind of strange. He actually invites two foreign nations to come and see how bad the people of Israel are. Have a look, verse 9, he says, Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. God is saying to the Philistines in Ashdod and the people of Egypt, he says, come to Israel and look at what they're doing. It's terrible. It's nothing less than public humiliation of Israel. He wants his people to feel the shame of these foreign nations shaking their heads in disbelief at their behavior. I don't know if I should admit this, but uh, Janice and I have actually tried this one on our kids. There's been times when the kids are just being such ferals and nothing else has worked. And so we try this one. We say, maybe I should tell all your friends about how bad you're being. (laughs) What would your teacher think if she knew (laughs) that you were speaking so nastily to mummy? Now, desperate times, right? We would never do that. Just the, the, the situation just gets to you sometimes. But friends, this is basically what God is doing. He, he's shaming them. But what would have been most humiliating to Israel is that the nations that God picked, Ashdod and Egypt, they're not just Israel's enemies. They're two nations that we saw God call out in chapter 1. They are wicked nations, sinful nations. And by inviting these nations to sit in judgment over Israel, God is effectively saying, you are even worse. Because God loves his people, he sometimes uses the outside world to expose his own people's sin. Now we've seen that right here in our own country, haven't we? A few years back, there was a royal commission into institutional responses to child sexual abuse. And a good part of that commission was focused on churches. And what was uncovered was that the church in Australia had failed to protect children within its care. The church in Australia had willfully covered over sin. 
And so God shamed us. He used those who are not his people to expose sin in his people. How terrible that it took the government to teach the church to do good. That is shameful. But God shamed us so that we would not continue in sin. He's still doing it though, isn't he? I suspect that God may be doing the same thing with with Hillsong right now. He's using the outside world to expose sin in his own church. And it's very possible that within our own denomination, when we are called before the Supreme Court in November, he may do the same. I don't know. He does it on a church level, but I dare say some of you have experienced it on a personal level too. Have there been times where you've been shamed by a non-Christian acting in a more godly way than yourself? It's not nice. It's incredibly uncomfortable. But when God uses the world to expose the sin of his own people, he does that because he loves us. Because he wants us to change. Now, we're going to skip ahead to verse 6 of chapter 4. We're going to revisit some of what we we skip over here, so don't worry, we will come back. Uh, But chapter 4, verse 6, we see our third point. And that is that we, we most clearly see the connection with, between God's love and God's punishment. We see how they come together because we see that it is because God loves his people that he disciplines his people. Now, we've already seen that God's discipline can take the form of warnings, something we see all throughout scripture. God's discipline can also take the form of public humiliation, of shaming, where sin is exposed. But here in chapter 4, we see that God also uses suffering as a form of discipline. Because from verse 6 of chapter 4, God begins to list all the ways that he has already tried to discipline his people through suffering. Verse 6, he says, I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. And you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. He sent famine in the hope that God's people would remember God and turn back to him. Likewise, in verse 7, there were times when God withheld rain from his people. Times in verse 9 where he used disease and pests to destroy crops and gardens. Times in verse 10 where God caused soldiers to die in battle. Times in verse 11 where whole cities were destroyed. And notice God doesn't shy away from responsibility here. It doesn't say that God merely knew about the suffering of his people. It doesn't say that God merely allowed the suffering of his people. God takes ownership. He says, I did it. I caused you to suffer. 
I gave you empty stomachs. I withheld the rain. I sent plagues. I killed your young men. Does that make you uncomfortable? It makes me uncomfortable. God says all of these sufferings were inflicted by him, but they were all inflicted for a purpose. We see it in the repeated refrain, don't we? What was the goal? That they might return to him. Now, I really want you to understand carefully what I'm saying here, because a lot of damage has been done by Christians misapplying this teaching. While it is taught in Scripture that God sends suffering to discipline his children so that they might return to him, that does not mean that those who suffer are particularly guilty of sin. Hear what I'm saying there? God does use suffering to discipline his people, but that does not mean that those who suffer are particularly guilty of sin. Now, Jesus makes this very clear in Luke chapter 13. You might remember the passage where Jesus is told about uh, this horrible slaughter of people in Galilee. And he says to those who bring him this news, he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? Is it because they're so bad that they suffered? And Jesus says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, says Jesus, you too will all perish. Do you see how Jesus holds those two things in tension? He says, it is not because of particular sin that suffering occurs. It is not because they did X that Y happens, but at the same time, that suffering should drive us to repent of sin. Unless you repent, you too will perish, says Jesus. And so friends, when we see suffering, when we experience suffering, our response should not be to try and point the finger of blame at others, but to instead consider where we may need to repent of our own sin. Suffering should remind us of the fatherly discipline of God. That should lead us to repent. God uses suffering to discipline his children, and he does that because he loves us. He doesn't send suffering to make you miserable. He sends suffering to grow you to change you. Friends, because God loves his people, he warns his people about the danger of sin. He shames his people in order to expose their sin. He sends suffering upon his people so that they might repent of sin. And it is God's love that drives him to give us every opportunity to repent of sin. We read in 2 Peter that God's desire is that no one will perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. But make no mistake, if we refuse his mercy, if 
Those who have benefited from his grace and who have experienced his love refuse to repent. If we continue in sin, as many in Amos' day did, God's love will turn into punishment. The writer to the Hebrews gives this warning. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they, he's referring to the Old Testament Israelites, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Friends, the warning is clear. And so our call to action is clear. Brothers and sisters, repent. Now, if you're someone who is here today and you haven't yet asked Jesus to forgive your sins, please do that today. Now, now no, God is patient. He is waiting. He is giving you time to turn back to him. He is so patient, but he won't wait forever. Friends, turn to Jesus today. Don't leave that any longer. Come talk to me about that if you'd like to do that today. But friends, if you're someone who is here, who follows Jesus already, if you call yourself a Christian, well, the message for you this morning is the very same. Repent. Keep repenting. You see, God loves you too much to let you stay the way you are. He, he wants you to grow. He wants you to change. He wants you to become more and more like Jesus. And by his spirit, he is doing that in you. But he calls on you to keep hearing the warning. Keep allowing your sin to be exposed. And to keep responding to his discipline with repentance. And friends, he does that because he loves you. If he didn't love you, he would let you continue in his sin. But because he loves you, he disciplines you. And so let's go out with these words from Hebrews 12 in our ears. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us For our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Amen.